gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch.com and Dispatch Media and Dispatch This and Dispatch That. I kind of feel like Yosemite Sam going over his fantastic dinner of coconut consomme and coconut fricassee and steamed coconut and broiled coconut and rah, I hate coconuts. Um, I don't hate the Dispatch. I just sometimes feel weird saying Dispatch over and over again until it doesn't sound normal. Um, today's episode is brought to you by our sponsors. You'll hear more about them in a little bit. Um, so uh, I wrote the G file today. It's a it's a bit of a stem winder. It's a bit off the wall. And um, whenever I finish a G file that I like, I'm always much much more nervous than one where. Um, I mean, I'm more nervous when I write when I hate, but I very rarely write when I absolutely hate. But you just sort of like have expectations about how people will receive it and when you think it's good. And then that often jinxes it. So I wrote about something I talked about with Will Salatan a little bit on the Thursday podcast about how, you know, all the GOP really needs to do is not be crazy and how. It could easily be the majority party in this country, um, or at least a viable, have a viable shot as a majority party in this country if it didn't um, cater to some of these these worst instincts, starting with, as I talk about, you know, this Margie Taylor Green woman who believes that um, the Jews have put lasers in space and um, Although that's not quite fair. As I note, I actually read the Facebook posting that she did, and it doesn't quite say that it's a Jewish laser. So the hashtag is a little unfair. She says that the the orbital um, uh, energy beam thing of a bob uh, that started the, the California wildfires a couple of years ago was owned by PG&E. And it's just suspicious that there's a guy who works for the Rothschild's investment bank who was on the board. And, you know, she, she didn't completely connect the dots, but the insinuation is, is that the perfidious bagel-snarfing um, warmongers, uh, the Jews, um, were involved in this orbital death ray. And, um, but it's funny, you know, I mean, this idea, like, as I pointed out, there was a guy in, DC here in DC from ward eight, which is, um, you know, DC is divided up into wards, um, who did a Facebook video a couple of years ago talking about how it started to snow all of a sudden and how that was clearly the Jews controlling the weather, um, because it's part of their scheme to destroy cities so they can buy them cheap or something along those lines. I have a link to the video, I think in the G file, you can check it out. And, you know, it just raises this question, why aren't Jews a hell of a lot richer? You know, and if they can control the weather and put orbital death rays up in space, um, or as as Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene alleges that I was making that point, um, that the Jews at least have an ownership stake and can collect usurious interest or something off of orbital death rays, you just think that Jews would be even richer than they are alleged to be. You know, I mean, if you could control the weather, you know, you could presumably. Um, you can make some money off of that. And, you know, if they were making money off of controlling the weather um, at PG&E, thanks to the Rothschilds, it's kind of weird that PG&E went bankrupt. But uh, be that as it may, it just, it's this, it's this fascinating, endlessly fascinating thing to me about how Jews more than any other group, probably, I, I think you have to say in history, f fill in this spot in people's brains for um, explaining all the bad things in the world and, um, um, or it's not just the bad things in the world. It's this idea that no, there are no accidents, there are no coincidences. And so therefore there has to be an intelligence behind the scenes profiting from bad things happening. And, 
um, the number one fill in the blank uh, villain for that tends to be Jews. There have been other movements and other times where other groups fill in. You know, the Iranians have lots of conspiracy theories, obviously about Jews, um, to be sure, but also about the English. And in America, you know, some of the populist stuff of the 19th century, again, some of them had real issues with Jews too, but they also thought that the English were the secret string pullers um, behind the universe. And it's a funny thing to me because it's, it's sort of like, you know, there's this argument you get from atheists, which has merit. I'm not an atheist, but it definitely has merit that like people who want to prove the existence of God, um, they resort to these arguments called God in the gaps, right? There's something we don't understand about evolution or that doesn't quite make sense about evolution. And aha, that must be where God was at work. And, um, uh, the, you know, and I don't think that people think Jews are God. They might think they're the, some sort of Gnostic demiurge force or something. I don't know, but it's a similar sort of argument is that if you start from the premise that there are no coincidences and everything is planned and somebody behind the scenes who's rigged the system is benefiting from it, when in doubt, you just plug in the Jews for a lot of these people. And it's, 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 it's dismaying, but it's also just, to me, it's, it's kind of fascinating. And in cases like Green and the guy from DC, I also just think it's kind of funny because if you actually believe Jews had that kind of power, um, you know, why are there still poor Jews? Why do Jew, why is Israel, um, you know, had such trouble over the last 70 years, you know, or as I, as I explained in the Jew file, you know, if you can make it rain Benjamins off of your weather controlling satellites, um, why wouldn't you actually make it just rain in Israel, a country that's like 50% desert? Um, anyway, I started to start with there. I start with that because I thought it was fun. And then I, I move on to this more basic point that the, the inability of the GOP and conserve and lots of conservatives generally to just simply say, um, we want no part of this woman. We don't want no part of the forces she represents. Um, uh, we want no part of guys wearing, you know, buffalo skins and Viking helmets in uh, when they siege the Capitol. Uh, the the sort of, I mean, yeah, lots of Republicans have denounced that, but you know, it's almost always through these like gritted teeth, and then they want to change the subject. And that's just sort of crazy to me. And it, in particularly, you know, in the context of this week where Senator Rob Portman announced that he is going to, he's not going to run again because um, Congress and our politics are so screwed up that there is no incentive structure for somebody who just wants to do the hard work of legislating and governing. And he's fed up with it. And I don't blame him for being fed up with it. But, you know, a party that is going to go out of its way to celebrate, or at the very least, not offend um, the sort of the, you know, the Pizzagate caucus or the, you know, the Mar Marjorie Taylor Greens and the tinfoil heads, never mind, you know, the even more unsavory groups. If you're always going to be bending over backwards, lest you offend those people, but you have no problem with offending decent bourgeois you know, middle-class, hardworking, basic conservative suburban voters. Um, well, that's just an idiotic trade-off. Um, and it's going to shrink the party enormously. It's, and even worse, if it, if, if the Yahoo, if the Gateses and Bobberts or whatever that woman's name is, and Taylor Greens, if they actually succeed in truly taking over the party, which I don't think they've done, not by a long shot, their influence is sort of analogous to, you know, the squads. They get a lot of attention. The other party likes to focus a lot of attention on them and say, and say, see, they're all like that. Um, uh, you know, they're doing with Marjorie Taylor Greene, what a lot of conservatives have been doing with, you know, um, what's her name? Omar or, or AOC, you know, or, or uh, what's her name? Uh, Rajita Tlaib. You know, we say, you know, look at these backbenchers. They're really running the show. Um, and now the GOP has 
a similar problem, except ours are worse. You know, I mean, um, you know, look, the woman from Minnesota, she's bad. And I think her anti-Semitic stuff is bad and all that. And Democrats should be condemned for all of it. But um, if you're part of the space laser caucus, the Jewish space laser caucus, in, in some ways that's, that, that just strikes me as worse. And, um, and it bothers me more because allegedly these people speak for my side and I keep hammering this, but I think, you know, maybe it's just my national review upbringing. Part of the job of being a conservative is to police your own side is to make it clear that your yahoos and crazies don't speak for, don't represent, you know, your authentic philosophy. And Meanwhile, and there, anyway, so as a practical political point, my point is just look, you look at what the Democrats and progressives are doing right now. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff that's defensible that the Biden administration is doing. And even a lot of the stuff I dislike, it's what you get when you win an election is you get to do what you want. They said they were going to do a lot of the stuff and they're doing it. And I disagree with a lot of it. Um, but if you just sort of take a step back and you look at how like you know, Pete Buttigieg saying that, you know, just being sort of cavalier and dis dismissive of the good jobs that, you know, getting rid of the Keystone pipeline, um, is going to destroy and just saying, well, we hope they find better jobs. If you listen to John Kerry, um, and you have to listen because if you watch him, it's really distracting because he's had so much Botox and plastic surgery. Um, he kind of looks like a, he kind of talks like a badly dubbed, you know, Japanese movie. Um, but if you listen to him carefully, he says, um, you know, first of all, he admitted, and he's right, that America could do everything right and it really wouldn't change climate, the patterns of climate change very much. Um, and again, I think climate change is a real issue. I disagree with a lot of the progressive approach to it. Um, I think throwing a wet blanket on the economy is the wrong way to go. But, um, you know, I'm open to a carbon tax. I'm open to all sorts of things. What I would really like, I'm a big fan of geoengineering. And what I would really like is to spend, have a Manhattan project where we spend $10, 20000000000 billion on coming up with a way to fix the problem rather than just simply slow economic production, um, which is, uh, you know, just gets you to a bad destination um, slower. Uh, you know, if the, if the earth is in fact suffering from a fever, um, the way to fix it, you know, fix something that has a fever, someone or an organism that has a fever is you treat the fever, you give them aspirin or whatever. And I, you know, I would want to study the crap out of it because, you know, there are lots of unintended consequences go from going half-assed, but I would, you know, if, if we could see the upper troposphere with reflective stuff, that'd be great. If it, you know, if, it, if we could create more clouds to heighten the albedo in the atmosphere, uh, you know, albedo is, I believe I have this right. It reflects, it's how much sunlight is reflected back into space. Um, if we do things like, you know, uh, reforesting Kilimanjaro, uh, you know, the reason why the snows of Kilimanjaro are gone aren't because of climate change primarily, it's because of deforestation up there. Uh, I'm a big believer in just planting just just a lot of trees, which soak up carbon. And anyway, I think there are lots of things to do that don't involve, um, you know, ha too hastily destroying, you know, the uh, the fossil fuel industries. And I would, you know, and I have no problem starting with coal and all that because coal is bad and it's ugly, um, and it's being phased out for economic reasons anyway because of uh, natural gas. And that's good. And that's why our emissions have been so low. Um, but en anyway, enough with the digression about climate change. It's just that whenever I criticize Democrats about climate change, I get screamed at that I'm a denier and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not. I just see it differently. I'm what uh, Matt Ribley calls, um, um, what is it, a lukewarmist, right? Um, I'm, I, I think it's a problem. I think it should be studied. I think there are things we can do at the margins. But I don't think that we um, need to crash our own economy for um, in a mad rush when, getting back to my point, as John Kerry says, we could do everything that we want to do and it wouldn't change the global situation almost at all. Um, and so when he talks about how he wants 
to get people out of the oil industry and making solar panels. Uh, it doesn't quite work that way. Um, uh, and he says we need to do all of this stuff to our own economy just to set an example around the globe. It just strikes me as really naive. You know, if you're not going to convince a country, let's say, let's say for the sake of argument, Brazil has um, a trillion gallons of oil, a billion gallons of oil under its surface, under its soil, right? And they discover a huge oil reserve. And we say to them, hey, look, we're refusing to develop, to, to tap our oil reserves or expand our production. You should too. You should follow our example. Um, I have a hard time believing that Brazil would do it. And the, only, and the way that I think about this is since commodities are fungible, um, what if they found a billion dollars worth of, or a hundred billion or a trillion dollars worth of gold um, under the ground? And we told them, you know, don't dig it up. Poor and developing countries, non-democratic countries, um, uh, all sorts of countries are simply not going to follow our example because um, John Kerry and James Taylor uh, go to meetings in Paris and Vienna eating clever cheese and, and agreeing with each other about symbolic moves. Anyway, so that kind of stuff, uh, even worse stuff like um, how the administration and Democrats generally are um, just caving to the desires of um, the, the, the teachers' unions uh, when you know, look, this is the party that says, believe in science. This is this party that says, at the drop of a hat, do it for the children. This is the party that says, government can do great and good things for the people. Um, and the Democrats are the ones who know how to make government work for the common person and work for the children and all of these kinds of things. And the government's own scientists, the CDC have come out and so have a bunch of other people come out and simply said that these shut these school shutdowns are a disaster. Kids are, you know, forget forget the suicides, which is should be, you know, that should be alone should be enough of a canary in the coal mine for you. But just the academic performance, the mental health issues, um, the lost productivity from parents who don't have uh, means to to have someone wash their kids. This is costing us literally trillions of dollars over the long term, and it's damaging our country, and it's damaging kids. And, you know, I saw this clip on, on Special Report last night of this guy talking about how the guy who collects his garbage is exposing himself to more risk than these teachers. And, yeah, look, I'm not saying, look, if you have diabetes or if you're overweight or whatever, you know, or you have some other comorbidity or, uh, you know, some underlying issue that the state should force you to go, you know, into a classroom. You can be flexible and reasonable about this. But on the whole, we know that transmission doesn't come from schools. There've been enough schools that have been open and the, and the, the transmission issue was not um, significant. And the teachers unions are just laying bare the fact, something that a lot of us always knew, which is that they care more about the teachers and really the bureaucrats who are members of the union as well then they actually care about the children. I mean, the teachers unions behave in ways like, you know, when there's a government shutdown and immediately the first thing that government agencies do, particularly when it's a Democrat in office, is shut down the most popular stuff, right? They shut down the, the museums, they shut down the post office, they shut down the things where the normal person feels the pinch. Um, and that's deliberate, right? It's sort of like some sort of weird inverted bug that wears all its vital organs on the outside. They make all the things that people actually want from government the first to get um, uh, stopped or frozen or locked out from, you know, from American people to access them so that the pain of the shutdown is felt most acutely. And the teachers unions do something very similar where they are fighting for their own union interests, their own members' interests, which unions are allowed to do. Um, but I don't think public sector unions should exist. Um, 
but so they're fighting for their, their the, the, the self-interest and sometimes selfish self-interest of the members of the teachers unions. And when you criticize them, they like, like, uh, Martin Sheen in that, uh, Stephen King movie, uh, where Christopher Walken is the psychic guy. I can't remember the name of it, but you know, Martin Sheen holds up that kid, um, as a, as a human shield for the sniper and they hold up the kids and they say, you know, you hate kids. You don't, you don't want what's good for kids. And it's cynical and it's, and the pandemic has made it transparent. And then there's the even crazier stuff, right? You know, San Francisco, just the school board or school district or department of education or whatever it's called, just declared that they're going to rename a lot of these buildings, a lot of these schools, because people like Abraham Lincoln and um, George Washington have dishonorable legacies. Uh, the California, in California, they have these proposed uh, ethnic studies guidelines. David writes about it a lot in his newsletter today, which, you know, uh, you know, have a list of significant people of color and they include Pol Pot, but not Martin Luther King or Thurgood Marshall or John Lewis. It's, it's, it's insane. It's nuts. And, um, and yes, to a certain extent, it, Ju- it, it that justifies it confirms a lot of the things that the loudest screechiest voices on the right have been saying about about left wingers you know and, and frankly that i've been saying you know for 20 years about left wingers um i don't dispute that but it's very difficult to have credibility about that stuff when you're talking about jewish space lasers um you know it's it's if all if all Republicans, if, 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 if all the Republicans were basically like Rob Portman or, you know, uh, Mitch Daniels, praise be upon him. Um, and we're boring blue blazer. That's a bad idea. Kind of guys, you know, why are we doing that kind of guys? Um, this is crazy. This is not what normal Americans believe in kind of guys. It would be, that's the majority. I think I sincerely believe that is still the majority position in this country, but because of the tribal nature of our politics and all the negative partisanship, it's very hard for those guys to get through under the best of circumstances. It's literally impossible for them to get through, um, in the Matt, Matt Gates era. And, um, and so, and I'll, I'll stop on this in a second, but you know, I was, you know, and this is a problem for lots of institutions too that are so hooked on the own the libs craziness stuff that um, they don't know how to go a different way at this point. There's almost a whole generation of television producers and and Hill staffers that this is the only politics they know at this point. I mean, there's a reason why Madison Cawthorn, it was reported this week, this you know this kid from North Carolina, he's 25, so I get to call him a kid. Um, who has made it clear quite a few times he doesn't know very much. He doesn't know what Congress does. He doesn't know what legislating is. And but the point is, he doesn't care. You know, they they someone found uh, unearthed his email an email from him where he said that he is he is organizing his shop entirely around communications and not around legislation. Um, and this is very much like the Matt Gates nonsense where he thinks that you have to be giving hot takes on TV, um, to make news, because if you're not, as he, as he says, if you're not making news, you're not governing. That's not what governing is. And so you have this, this party that is increasingly being taken over by people who are just trying to make everybody angry all of the time to, uh, describe the world in these sort of manichaean black and white ways where we're the forces of good and they're the forces of evil and um their enemies are the people who actually want to govern they're the people who actually have an understanding about how governing works um you know right now there are more fierce denunciations around the country of liz cheney than there are of marjorie taylor green and the the thing that that drives me crazy is this is unsustainable right i mean first of all if it's if the gop becomes the party of tinfoil heads um it's going to be a rump minority party 
And then Democrats are going to be able to indulge their base all the more. If, um, and if it's merely perceived as the party of Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene, Democrats are going to be able to run the table. Um, and the Republican Party will become a failed party. But moreover, if they succeed, you know, so if they succeed, it will be bad for the country to have one of the two major political parties just suffused with people who cannot make moral distinctions about insurrectionists, white suppressionists, white, white supremacists, um, secessionists, uh, you know, and conspiracy theorists. That's bad for the country because they could win elections and then they act on this stuff. And we saw, you know, we had a taste of what that kind of looks like from the siege on January 6th. And so it seems to me, like, it's like if you have, if, if someone has, you know, like I, I used gangrene in the, um, in the G file, but I'll change the metaphor a little bit. One of the things they learn in the later seasons of uh, The Walking Dead is that if you get like bitten by a zombie on your hand or your lower arm, if you act really, really, really quickly and cut off the arm, you can stop the 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 spread of the um, spread of the infection of the zombie virus. And but you got to do it quick. Now the thing is, if you get into all sorts of hand wringing about how much healthy arm you can leave behind and what's the best spot, you don't want to cut too high and all this kind of stuff. The more you talk about that, the higher the spot on the body, on the arm, goes because the infection is spreading. And if you wait too long, then you got a zombie on your hands. And it should be easy for the GOP to simply say, the House GOP caucus to say, we want no part of this woman. Don't give her committee assignments. You think it's going to get easier if there are 10 more Marjorie Taylor Greens after the next election cycle or, or 15 more and they actually become a caucus? Um, you know, there are basically two or three of them right now. Uh, if you include people like Louis Gomer, Gomer, you know, maybe four or five. Um, but what you, the best way to send a, a signal to the political marketplace is by saying this shtick won't work for you because the party is going to police itself. The, you know, the, the Congress is going to police itself. And the longer you wait, the more the infection spreads until you feel like you have no choice but to find common cause with them because they're part of your coalition. And that's madness. It's just, it's just insane to me. Um, this is, you know, appeasement metaphors are overdone, but, you know, you stop these things early and they don't become bigger problems. Um, so anyway... I get into a bunch of stuff about John Stuart Mill and the stupid party and what he meant by that. And, um, but you can read the G file for yourself. There are a lot more jokes in there. A reader pointed out to me, you know, dispatch reader, and we've got a lot of great dispatch readers that, um, AB and I, AB Stoddard on the first podcast of the week were really, really dismissive and contemptuous of the argument that you can't, um, the, the Rand Paul argument that you can't impeach a president once he left office. And, uh, I think the reader was right. Uh, there have been, there have been thoughtful people. I think they're in the minority and I don't think they're persuasive. Um, but there have been people who make a good faith, including some friends of mine, um, argument that you can't impeach a president who's left office or try and convict a president who's left office. And that's a really important distinction that has been lost or deliberately fudged by a lot of people. Um, Donald Trump wasn't impeached as an ex-president. He was impeached as president. He was still president when he was impeached. The question is um, whether or not you can be tried and convicted by the Senate after you've left office. And that, that changes things. And I think it's Scott McConnell's written about this. Um, he wrote, I wish I'd seen it before I wrote my column um, this week about it, but you know, he makes the point that the Constitution says the Senate shall try all impeachments. Donald Trump was lawfully, constitutionally, and legitimately impeached while he was still in office. 
And so the impeachment goes to the Senate and they get to try it. And, um, and I think that they get to con- convict if they, if they so choose to. I also think, you know, it's one of these weird things. It really doesn't matter whether it's unconstitutional. I very rarely say such things um, because I think it almost always matters whether something is unconstitutional. But the simple fact of it is, is that the Senate will hold a trial and the Republicans can run to the Supreme Court and say, you've got to stop this trial. And the Supreme Court will say, are you high? We're not getting involved in this. This is not a justiciable thing. The Senate has the sole power to try um, impeachments. It is not reviewable by the Supreme Court. And they're going to go and do it, and we're not going to get in the way. And I I, I liken it to um, declarations of war. There are a lot of people, you know, including people like Justin Amash, who I think do it sincerely, who argue that the Congress must issue a formal declaration of war if it is going to um, uh, authorize the use of force. Well, we haven't had a formal declaration of war since 1942 with World War II. And um, we've had a lot of wars since then. We had big wars. We had little wars. We had wars that weren't authorized by Congress. Um, and we've had wars that were authorized by Congress. And, you know, if, if you really need help sleeping, maybe we'll do a podcast on the War Powers Resolution, which is one of the perennially most boring, um, gitchy-goo, thumb-sucking co- topics uh, that they dedicate panels to in Washington. But the point is, is that no Supreme Court is going to say, um, was going to say, you know, to Harry Truman, you have to call the troops home because this police action thing didn't have a declaration of war to it. The Supreme Court was never going to say that about the first Iraq war or the second Iraq war. It didn't say it about, uh, Vietnam and the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. And you know, some of this is, is sort of legal hair splitting because if Congress authorizes force, but doesn't formally declare war the way Michael Scott declares bankruptcy, I declare bankruptcy, um, is, is, is that a distinction without a difference? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. That's not my point. My point is, is that even if it's a really meaningful distinction and, and I could persuade you that it was unconstitutional to send troops to, to send, you know, uh, combat troops to, to Korea or to Vietnam or to Iraq or Afghanistan or a lot of other places. Um, if the Congress approves it, pays for it, president authorizes it, it's, it's going to happen because no one is going to say it's unconstitutional. And, um, I wish we lived in a society where, um, more institutions didn't punt everything to the Supreme court, but that's the way it is. And this is something that the Supreme court or the, the Senate is not going to punt to the Supreme court. So he's going to get tried. And the Democrats, I think have behaved cynically and reprehensibly in how they've handled this. I am increasingly convinced that they don't really care about convicting him. They don't care about it being a bipartisan effort. They simply want to, uh, make Donald Trump and his, and January 6th, and all of that more of a wedge issue for Republicans. Um, they want to further scare away um, those suburban conservative voters who don't want any part of, you know, coups and secession. They want to scare them further into the Democratic Party. They want more situations like the Georgia runoff and making the impeachment as um, painful for Republicans as possible, I think, is part of that strategy. I don't think they all sincerely planned it out that way, but I think some did. And I think the internal logic of how the Democrats work um, contributed to it. If the Democrats were super serious about unifying the country around impeachment um, as symbolized by a more bipartisan effort from the House to impeach him, they would have consulted Republicans on the wording of the articles of impeachment. They would have had Republican floor managers in the trial. Um, they would have phrased the article of impeachment broadly and carefully enough that people like Chip Roy, um, and others wouldn't have a intellectually legitimate excuse to vote against it. Very hard to cross the, even for a political trial, it's very hard to prove, um, incitement compared to proving, say, dereliction of duty or abuse of power 
or failure to uphold his oath or any of those things. And you can read Andy McCarthy about this. He's done a really good job. I think by far the best case for impeaching him has been by my friend, um, Dan McLaughlin, also known as Baseball Crank, over at NR. And you should you should really read, particularly his response to the Federalist, which I think was just very well done. Um, but anyway, uh, we're going to have a precedent that you can have trials, right? So this concern that it sets a bad precedent to have impeachment trials is already a moot point. It's a dead letter because we're going to have the trial. And even if he's acquitted, there's still a precedent for doing it. It will be cited the next time someone wants to impeach a president towards the end of his term. But more broadly, the reason why I think it, it has to be constitutional is, first of all, we've had impeachments. We've had impeachment trials after figures have left office. Um, you know, the most famous one is Belknap. I think there was also a judge. Um, the framers, as, as Dan points out, um, had in their minds the uh, the Hastings impeachment trial led by Edmund Burke, um, which continued years after Hastings had left his position as a colonial governor. Um, Keith Whittington, who's been on the podcast, you know, explained that lots of states had um, clauses in their constitutions that said you could only have impeachment trials after you left left office. So the idea that it was completely alien to their thinking. I think is not right. Where I think that the, the the people who think it's unconstitutional have a point is that a close textual reading of the Constitution can go either way on the question of impeaching a president after he's left office. But I think McConnell's right that it's um, that's a dead letter too because he wasn't impeached after he left office. The only question is the trial. Moreover, just as a matter of common sense, I just have a really hard time believing that Madison and, and you know, uh, Hamilton and those guys thought that once you were within one month of leaving office, you could no longer impeach a president no matter what he did. Um, if it meant the trial would extend past his term of office, just strikes me as ludicrous. Uh, you know, that's, that is a get out of jail free card politically for all sorts of abuses. And that just, and I know I'm a broken record on this, but that leads me to my basic point. Let's fi let fine. Let's stipulate you know, Hugh Hewitt and and uh, you know all the Fox primetime guys and Lindsey Graham and and uh, Rand Paul. Let's stipulate they're all right that what they call snap impeachments is a really bad precedent for. Um, the country and will weaken the presidency in some way. I don't really, I, I can't really see, I can't really game out how that works, given how hard it is to get 67 votes in the rest, but okay, let's concede it. So in the future, impeachments at the end of a presidency or immediately after a presidency will be more common. There'll be lots of yelling. It'll be very, very unlikely that you'll get 67 votes. And um, nothing will come of it. Okay, but it'll be ugly for our politics, yada, yada, yada. Okay, that's the worst case scenario. I'm not trying to be, you know, straw manish about this. If someone can come to me with a more horrifying worst case scenario um, from this precedent, I'm all ears to it. I'm, I'm, I'm legitimately curious. But meanwhile, the worst case scenarios involved in letting a president try to steal an election, pressure election officials to rot, to manufacture votes, um, encourage a crowd to interfere with the, the, the constitutional and due process of the transfer of power. Um, what are the worst case scenarios that come from that precedent? I, I, there are a lot. I mean, and they're much worse than, you know, all of the phantasms that they're coming up with about the precedent of having, uh, you know, post office impeachments. And I, I say post office impeachments because I was listening to the editor's podcast over at National Review the other day, and they kept using the phrase post office impeachments. And it called, I kept thinking of like Newman from Seinfeld running this tribunal of mailmen, or sorry, postal workers, um, conducting a post office impeachment. But uh, uh, anyway, doesn't matter because there's going to be a trial. That precedent has been set. 
And now the question is, what is the what is the moral hazard of leaving the precedent of um, acquitting Donald Trump for his behavior? And uh, the best argument I heard recently from somebody, uh, I got to keep them anonymous, is that my understanding is that Donald Trump is in a deep funk right now. His businesses are in real trouble. He's super in debt. He feels like a loser. Um, and, uh, and he has, and his, you know, his, his star is dimming. And if you trot him out as, uh, a victim and then he triumphs again, that could boost his spirits. It could boost support for him. And it's a bad idea because it's better to let the tumor of, of Trumpism just shrink naturally rather than to sort of revive it by something like this. I think that's a really good argument on the merits for why this may not be the best thing in the short term for the GOP. Um, I am less convinced that it's the right argument for America. I just increasingly come down on this position that since the future is unknowable um, and you know, within reason, you should just do what you think is right and, um, and not think 10 steps ahead about what this means for the party or for, you know, my food bowl or whatever, just, um, don't lie and do what you think is right. Do what you think you could explain, uh, most proudly to your kids or your grandkids one day when they with the benefit of hindsight, ask you, how did you respond to this kind of stuff? And it's, to me, it's like the, um, you know, it's the zombie bite, just cut off the limb and be, and be done with it. And it's a painful thing to do, but, uh, it just strikes me as the right thing to do. But because of Democrats being cynical and, and partisan, and because of Republicans being cynical and partisan, uh, Trump is going to get tried. It's going to, the Democrats are now saying it's going to be a quickie trial. They're not going to have witnesses. They want to move on. And so we're going to find out what happens to Trump when he is acquitted. And, um, I worry about that precedent far more than the precedent of, of this impeachment. I also wrote about on the Wednesday G file about this GameStop stuff. I find it fascinating and bizarre and and really dumb all at once and i i find that this weird convergence of populist right wingers and populist left wingers um being outraged that some institutions are making you know like this robin hood trading app thing um some institutions are making it more difficult for small time, largely uninformed investors from throwing their way, um, from, from throwing away their money on sort of bizarre 21st century social media versions of, you know, pump and dub stock games. Um, um, I also think it's, weird and bizarre that we should pass laws to prevent them from doing it. Um, it seems to me that this is a perfect example of how you just wait for the market to sort it out. You know, nature heals itself. Um, so does the market when it comes to people doing really dumb things for psychological reasons that are um, not directly related to uh, notions of actual value. Um, you know, look, I mean, it's absolutely true that some of these guys made money with this sort of this meme trading stuff and, and they figured out how to sort of game the system to do it. And I don't like it, but at the same time, I, I, I would, I personally wouldn't stop them. Um, um, I do think that if I ran one of these trading things, given how, you know, you know, as I, I was reading something about how, you know, it's, it's not just some sort of moral scolding thing. It also has to do with some of these people are leveraged and they know they're not going to be able that 
that these clients who use these apps aren't going to be able to make good on the what they owe on the shares that they're buying on margin. And so they're preventing them from sticking these institutions with um, this bad paper. At least that's the way I understand it. But anyway, people do dumb things. There were tulip bulb crazes. There were, you know, or all sorts of things that um, people spend their money stupidly on, or it doesn't even have to be stupidly. You know, I mean, if you really, if, if, if you want to spend money to vengefully punish short traders, uh, it's a free country. Go ahead and do that. And, you know, some of the short traders are getting screwed by this. And going forward, people, you know, institutions will start pricing in to their, you know, their risk analysis, the possibility that something like this could happen. And so I just, you know, I kind of feel like this is one of these things where doing nothing is probably the best course of action. Um, but I do think it's interesting. I mean, it, politically, psychologically, I think it's really interesting. I think it's kind of bizarre that, you know, a lot of these people have convinced themselves that, um, you know, the shorters are the, um, the titans of Wall Street. They're really not. Most of Wall Street, as I understand it, really hates um, the short traders. But again, this is not my zone of expertise. I did point out on the Wednesday G file, though, it kind of reminds me of um, um, the the phrase homo economicus. And what I mean by that is that there were a bunch of people on Twitter and elsewhere who were dunking on libertarians and free marketers and adherence of the efficient market hypothesis, the, 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 the extreme version of which holds that markets always find the right price and you can't outthink the market. I don't think that's true. Um, the more sophisticated and reasonable view of efficient market hypothesis is that it is extremely difficult to outthink the market over the long term. And there are occasional, you know, uh, outliers, you know, Warren Buffett is one of them. And, um, but for the most part, unless you plan on doing extreme due diligence and how you research these things and have huge institutions behind you to, to find value that others don't see, um, the smart thing to do is, is buy an index fund or something like that and hold on to it for a long time because most of the really clever stuff is statistical noise over the long term. Um, but anyway, what it, so what it, why it reminded me of the homo economicus stuff is that homo economicus, right? Economic man is this term that critics of capitalism or critics of the free market love to trot out as if it is this um, sort of mic drop insight that man isn't purely an economic creature. You know, man does not live by bread alone. Um, and the thing is, is I don't know that there have ever been any economists who actually believed that. Um, you know, the, the, the phrase homo economicus, uh, when, what's his name? John Stuart Mill. Um, yeah, it was John Stuart Mill. Okay, I'm just tired. Um, so uh, my understanding is I wrote about this in Suicide of the West is that, you know, no one ever took the hard homo economicus position. Um, you know, other, you know, actually the, 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 the thinkers that take the, the, the most serious homo economic, homo economic man argument are actually Marxists, not free marketers. The Marxists are the ones who argue that, um, um, that your class interests, which is a fancy way of saying your economic interest, trump everything else. And that everything can be reduced to the cold, impersonal forces of dialectic materialism and all of that kind of stuff. But the, the, the free market position is that, you know, people are free and want different things. 
And one of the things they absolutely want is to maximize their self economic self-interest and all that, but that's not the only thing that they want. And moreover, they, they define their self-interest in ways that are not strictly about um, maximizing you know, profit. And uh, when Mill talked about homo economicus, he goes on to say that he's talking about it in the context of studying political economy. If you're studying sort of political, if you're studying economics, it makes a lot of sense, particularly in the beginning of sort of classical economics, to look at people as if they are economic actors. And, you know, as, as I put it, you know, uh, if you are a football analyst, you will look at the players on the field as homo footballists. You won't care what religion they are. You won't care whether they're gay or straight or any of that kind of stuff, you'll look at what they do on the field. And the classical economists who talked about homo economicus were talking about, in the context of studying economics, talk about economic man. But, you know, how many times have I said on this podcast, you know, talked about Will Herberg's stuff about man should be known as homo religio, you know, religious man. Um, I don't know any serious disciple of free market economics, most especially including Adam Smith, who went at length in the theory of moral sentiments about how, you know, man is more than just an economic creature. Um, it's always been sort of a straw man way to say, oh, you free marketers, you reduce everything down to personal greed. And it's not, it's, it's, it's just a way of talking about economics. And I think that the behavioral economists who bring in a lot of sort of psycho psychological theory and stuff in it make real contributions and have really good points about how people don't always act in their pure economic interests. As I wrote earlier this week, you know, um, it's very hard to come up with an argument for how suicide bombers are purely acting in their economic interest. Uh, I guess you could say that some of them are in the sense that, you know, Saddam Hussein and, and, and other jihadi types, uh, would, pay the families of people who committed suicide bombings. But I still think for the most part, there are other factors involved when you decide to blow yourself up other than just bringing home the bacon. Probably bringing home the bacon is probably the wrong phrase when we're talking at least about Muslim suicide bombers. But you get my point. Um, anyway, what else? Uh, so I, I actually kind of thought I was going to write about this in the G file today and I didn't. Um, I kind of have this idea about why it seems like I, I did, I did mention this in the Will Salatan conversation as well. Um, why so much of our politics is becoming increasingly decoupled from facts and truth. And I, you know, I want to credit Will for conceding that this is not just a problem on the right. Um, it's a more obvious problem right now on the right, given how many millions of Republicans believe the election was stolen, um, or how many thousands of people believe um, that Donald Trump is still the president of the United States because he's the head of the Corporation of America. Trust me, it's a real thing. Um, uh, we did a good fact check on this. It's one of these conspiracy theories going around. But... Um, it's a, it's definitely a problem on the left too. And I think it's kind of a disservice in some ways to talk about things as being, well, it's a problem on the left and the right. Yes, it is. But when you say something is a problem on both the left and the right, what you're, what you're really saying is that it's not a left-wing or a right-wing problem. It's an American problem. It's a cultural problem. And, um, I know I talk a lot about how people see politics as a form of entertainment and that weird things go on in your brain when you see politics as a form of entertainment, um, because in entertainment, things are just much more possible, right? Um, if the audience really wants to see um, the hero fly, you can make them fly, you know? And uh, certainly, you know, video games, digital media, all of this stuff um, lends to that sense. And I, 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 I'm still grasping to figure out how to, sort of put it in broader context, but it, I kind of feel like the proliferation of people getting all of their information, including a lot of their written stuff from screens, it does something to your brain 
and in making you think that like the world is your Photoshop palette, that you can just um, turn the world into a deep fake that you want to believe. And so much of that is in the QAnon stuff, right? You know, it's all of this, um, you know, here's what we believe now, or here's what we're going to believe next stuff. And they just make up things. You know, one of the, one of the thing, one of the Facebook posts that Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene liked, um, or was dealing or approved of or whatever involved this, this claim that, um, Hillary Clinton was of course a pedophile and the murderer and all that stuff, but that she carved off the face of a baby and wore it as a mask. Now, I've been very critical of Hillary Clinton over the last 20 plus years. Um, but I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, I do not believe that to be true. Um, and I find it really disturbing that anybody not under supervision can believe that could be true. Um, and I think that's, but anyway, so it gets this thing about how when you lose all faith and trust in institutions, when you lose faith and trust in um, the media, and I mean the media writ large, every you know uh, every textbook is presumed to have an agenda, and that everybody is rewriting reality on the fly. And meanwhile, the world that you live in, in terms of the ones and zeros in front of your face, where you can put you know, they have apps where you can put, you know, Snoop Dogg's face on Sylvester Stallone with like three clicks and um, something seeps into your head that makes you actually do this sort of point and click thing to reality. And obviously it doesn't happen to everybody. And to the extent it happens to everybody, anybody, it, it works in degrees. Um, some of us just get carried away and believe silly things, but a non-trivial number of people, a number of people seem to have been given the permission structure by society itself to, um, um, grasp reality in a different way. And yeah, it has important political ramifications that are worth talking about, but it's disturbing on just a, a broader level that you can create bespoke realities. Um, because you can't, I mean, look, I'm a huge fan of all the things that liberal democratic capitalism and the free market and the the prosperity it brings let you do. And to a certain extent, we have created a bespoke reality because this is not the state of nature, right? This is the, you know, what Ernest Gellner and Robin Fox talk about how modernity after the enlightenment was the first truly novel environment created by living creatures. We changed what it meant to be human in a lot of ways. And so I I take it back that you can't change reality, but there are limits to how much you can change reality. And it seems that people are getting way ahead of themselves on how malleable reality actually is. And it makes me worry about how much our brains are going to change more with, with virtual reality. Um, And, you know, and this is, this is a really, you know, fundamentally important point is that technology changes the way, you know, material technology changes the way you see the world. It changes the way human beings interact with the world. And, you know, I always, you know, I always get these big arguments with my daughter, particularly when she was younger, because she loves to body surf and really, really big waves. And we used to go out and do it all the time. And, and I still like doing it with her, but, you know, sometimes the surf, particularly when we were in Hawaii was just so rough that, you know, we're just like, you, you can't go out and she'd get mad. And she had the same attitude about like rock climbing where she was like, I'll be fine. And I would always have to explain to her that, you know, OSHA does not sign off on nature. Um, you know, this is not a jungle gym with a, you know, padded rubber mat on the ground. You know, the ocean hasn't been baby proofed. And, you know, these rocks are not a video game where you get to do over. And 
I just kind of feel like we are internalizing in some ways our um, understanding, those are the doggers, um, understanding our reality more and more as if it's like a video game or um, a Photoshop kind of app. And I think that's one of the things that's driving these changes in our politics. And it, it worries me. Oh, so here's the other thing I want to talk about on the, um, uh, I wanted to write about in the G file and, um, I didn't, uh, get to it. Um, G file was pretty long as it is. Um, so if you were married to me and I fairly certain none of you are, since my wife is not going to be listening to this podcast in all likelihood. And if you are, I just, um, um, but if you were married to me or if you lived with me, you would know that one of the things I do is take commercials way too seriously and I get angry at them or I get amused by them. Um, when they, uh, um, I don't know, amuse me or bother me or whatever. Uh, you know, for years it was a running joke at national review, how much I hated those. Every kiss begins with K ads. Um, because first of all, they just, you know, they're trying to sell you on buying baubles for your wife and, um, and they make it the, the implicit promise there is like your wife will be, you know, generous with you if you get her a shiny trinket. And, you know, the running joke I always used to have was, you know, if every kiss begins with K, um, or if every kiss begins with, um, a jewel from K jewelers, you're kind of a whore. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, anyway, I used to be obsessed with that, but, um, there's this commercial that's on cable here, at least on the cable news channels a lot, um, for this product called leaf filter. And it has these guys doing this sort of seminar for these very pleasant, nice looking people, mostly couples who it looks like it should be one of these, you know, come for our briefing on why you should buy a condo or a timeshare and win three days at Disney World kind of presentations. And um, so everyone's sort of, you know, yuppie-ish or boomer-ish, um, well-dressed, mostly married couples. And it's all about how leaf filters um, that this, this, this leaf filter product for all I know, which is a great product. That's not my point. Um, is, uh, really important to get because it is so bad for your house to use conventional, uh, rain gutters and because leaves build up and then you get water damage and blah, 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 blah. And there's this scene where this guy in his, uh, you know, leaf filter polo hat is, asking the audience, you know, how many of you use a ladder to clean your rain gutters? And a bunch of hands go up. And at that point, this young, attractive woman turns to the guy sitting next to her and says, Dad, I keep telling you it's dangerous. Climbing ladders is too dangerous. And it drives me crazy. It's like, so let me get this straight. You drove to the seminar with your dad about getting this new space age, not space laser, um, space age leaf filter system. And you decided to take time out of presumably a Saturday, but maybe, you know, a work day. Who knows? Who knows why these people are all there and so excited about this presentation? But you're there. And the idea that you're driving with your dad to a leaf filter presentation and you're shocked when your dad raises his arm, raises his hand to say he still uses a ladder. That didn't come up in the drive over. I mean, how did you persuade dad to go to the leaf filter seminar in the first place if it wasn't because you were trying to get him to stop using ladders when he changes rain gutters? Why are you shocked that he is still using a ladder to change his rain gutters? If, you know, if you're at the leaf filter seminar and you convinced your dad to take you there or that your dad convinced you to take you there, it drives me nuts. And anyway, I just bring this up because I think it's funny and because 
Um, I feel like people should understand what my wife has to put up with as I yell at the television about these things all the time. Um, so with that, um, I think I'm done. I want nothing I have said to be construed as a reluctance on my part for Leaf Filter to sponsor this podcast. Um, but, uh, um, but there you have it. So with that, um, I will see you next time.